This morning we are going to be looking at a couple of passages primarily that we're going to be ranging around. So some passages I know at least one will be familiar to you. So I'm going to start reading in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 6, and then I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10, those verses listed there for you. And this is Jesus speaking both times. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly, fathers know, heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's Matthew 6. Now jumping to Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. This is the reading of God's word. This morning, I want to speak to you primarily from these passages about the word, the idea, Almighty, particularly as we confess it regularly in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And from Scripture, particularly these passages from Jesus, I want us to hear who God is as Almighty, that He is powerful and sovereign. And I want us to hear that so that we will take comfort from it that we will have peace in life because we trust Him, because we believe that God is Almighty as we pray to Him as Father. And also that as we think about and utilize God's almightiness, we would not misuse this truth of God's capacity as one who is all-powerful. So that's a little bit of table setting. What is the almightiness of God? Well, it's Tempting to think of it in terms of what we would like, what we want, uh, mainly access to one who can give stuff to us to overcome our limitations, almost to think of it in a fantasy way, a a wish projection uh, way, kind of seeing God uh, the Father like, do you remember that movie from, man, it's, it's been a long time ago, Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey, right, where there's this interaction, it's actually an inter- it's a pretty thoughtful movie, the Trinity uh, is in the movie, but Jim Carrey's character uh, cries out to God, he complains about basically how God is running things, and so God decides to do something that seems to us a bit daring, he gives 
Bruce some of his powers to teach him a lesson. And what does Bruce do? I mean, he just goes to town. He does what probably we would do. You know, he grants people these wishes. You can win the lottery. He uses it for, for cool clothes, for clever revenge on bullies, for doing things like walking on water. And there's even that song, I've got the power. Remember that? that song by Snap. Obviously you don't. Um, but it was part of... The movie and that, that, that whole wish projection thing is a little bit like I think we tend to move when we think about Almighty. But if we think of God as Almighty, that it means simply, I believe that there is somewhere an unlimited power that can choose and perform anything it likes, and I need to be on the right side of that power, we are robbing God of His personality, His fatherhood. And even people who are not Christians kind of can, can lean toward this. Whenever you hear someone talk about God as the universe or referring to some deity as kind of the universe instead of God as a father, they're, they're drifting into that same territory. And that kind of belief, God is this ultimate just will, this power doesn't have much to do, at least in terms of our relationship, with trust, with things like taking refuge, with belief. It makes us respond to God or induces us to respond to God like he's kind of a, a bully and that really we're just trying to side with the bully to appease him, but we're not really trusting him since, well, this guy flies off the handle and he's got a lot of firepower. In a wrong view of his almightiness, to the, this view of making God out to just be this force, this arbitrary will can make God seem and feel unsettling and wild and even abusive and somehow and sometimes when people are deconstructing that's how they talk about their experience of how they felt God to be abusive and maybe that's how you feel in relation to God this morning in relation to his almightiness that he seems untamed unhinged and ultimately untrustworthy just can't be comfortable with this God. We don't know what he's doing. But I want you to look at how, again, in these gospel passages, Jesus talks about God's power, his almightiness in Matthew 6. You see, the cash out for us of God being in control is care. What does Jesus go on about? He talks about things that we need, clothes, food, peace. In fact, four different times in Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says, almost like he was speaking to us in the 21st century, don't be anxious. He wants us to have a, a spiritual and, and even a kind of psychological peace in response to God and his working in the world. And he tells us, don't be anxious, not to shame us, but to comfort us, to relieve our pressure points psychologically and spiritually. It's as if he's saying, look, I know you're going to worry about how to get by in the world, but you've got to know this. God cares for you, and He is involved in providing for you. He's not inattentive. He's not indifferent. He is good. He cares. He shows up. And in fact, as we'll see, Jesus is God's proof of all these things. You see, Almighty is not like the power of the pagan gods who were and are these moody bullies. And the pagan gods, even, even, the reason I'm even bringing them up is that is the context for the writing of the Apostles' Creed, 2nd century 
very much in circulation were the ideas, the theology of, of, of these gods like Hades and Zeus and Ares and, and uh, gods like that. And they would intervene in the world from time to time. But instead, God's might is everywhere present all the time in creation. See, it's the underlying mystery of everything that exists. So the author of Hebrews, for example, says um, in, in Hebrews chapter 1 that God upholds the universe by the word of His power as if His constant speaking holds it together. And then in another passage, which I know you all know because you're memorizing it, Colossians chapter 1, 17 says, should I ask you? I'll just tell you because I know you're saying it with me. In Him, talking about Jesus, all things hold together. Like Jesus is somehow, some way, the cosmic glue of reality. Another metaphor, it's just like God is cupping the whole world in His hands. And the witness of Scripture is that God being Almighty is not just a solution to problems in the world. It's the very reason there is a world at all. Because God is all-powerful and constantly exerting His power and care in the world. But you see, for us, the issue is also, it gets down to what does it mean to live by faith? That's the issue as well as we confess that God is almighty. You see, we could not really trust God or in a God if this God's power were limited, if it were sporadic, if it were unpredictable. A God who exercised that kind of power would be, going back to what we talked about earlier, kind of a pagan God, something that we read about when we did the, the eighth grade mythology section, right? Or I don't know if they do that anymore. But that God would not be the world's sustainer. That kind of a God who's not reliable, who just kind of comes in and out, would be more like an invader or a distant ruler who wishes to, to impose force on his creation. And see, this is the problem with trying to place any limitations on God's power. It's a temptation even among Christians. If God's power were just one more Power, or if God's almightiness were just one more power among others, if God were mighty, but not almighty, then divine power would end up just being another form of manipulation and control. Only a God who is totally free and totally sovereign can relate to the world as we need and want this God to relate to us with total love, with total patience, and with generosity. And that is the God that Jesus confesses. And you're saying, so far so good. I like what you're saying. I like what Jesus is saying, but let's turn a few pages back. Because it seems like the God in the Old Testament, uh, he can kind of act like those pagan gods that you just described. He, For example, in the passage that we read in Genesis 18, it seems like he swooped in because of an outcry of injustice at Sodom and Gomorrah and decided to get down there and sort them out. And really, it seemed like maybe Abraham had to talk him off a ledge, right? Because what happened? Well, Abraham knows God and knows that there's this crisis with Sodom. Seems like things are going to go bad pretty quick. Is God just going to give up and wipe everyone out? And then it seems as if Abraham has to argue to persuade God to do otherwise. Almost this perverse kind of bidding, 50 45, 40, on down the line, 10. Please, God, won't you just, just, just chill out? 
And that's how some interpreters will take it. But here's the thing. And this is tied to God's power as almighty. God lets himself be bargued with as Abraham argues away, gradually reducing the number of good people there would need to be in the city for God to spare it. Because this is a story about Abraham and us seeing and relearning that God really is and can be trusted to do right and not to be unjust. This is actually a discipleship moment between God and Abraham. God himself works in and with Abraham in these circumstances. You see, the most vivid way for God to pastor Abraham is by having Abraham appeal to what he knows to be the deepest and most true thing about God as he prays to him, as he talks to him. He knows God is powerful, but he also knows that he is just and merciful. And so Genesis 8, uh, this, this passage that we read, Genesis 18, doesn't just show us this bad-tempered, fly-off-the-handle, capricious God who needs to be calmed down, given a brown paper bag to breathe in into, so he'll just settle down by calm, rational Abraham. But rather, it is Abraham embodying God's own justice in his prayers to God. He's being made more like God even as he prays to, or as he engages God. And God walks through this with us and with Abraham in this story. You see, this interaction between God and Abraham actually pictures how God's sovereignty, His being almighty, works for our good as He brings Abraham along in His own maturity and trust of the Lord. You see, God's power, His almightiness, like the power of a good parent or teacher, is the capacity to nourish His people and to help their freedom and their trust to grow. You see, without the sovereignty of a good parent, children have this diminished sense of their own worth and agency, and that's what He's actually building in Abraham here. In the same way, God's sovereignty is what secures human freedom and not what threatens it. Here, God encounters Abraham to further Abraham's faith, to further his trust of God. Abraham really has to enter into God's own justice, pleading for cities to make decisions and to act, all under the canopy of God's justice and power as a part of his own, Abraham's own movement to godliness. God's freedom doesn't compete, let me put it like this, God's freedom doesn't compete with our freedom, but rather secures it as we engage Him. I know that's a lot, but it actually has a cash out here for us in terms of our practical engagement in the world. And here's the last thing, the last point I want to make on Almighty. Confessing God, that God is almighty and powerful, is meant for our comfort and good and praise But ironically, especially given what we've read and what Jesus exhorted us to do in Matthew 6, too often it does the opposite. It causes what? Anxiety, fear, and dread. Let me put it like this, since we're in a Presbyterian church and I'm a Presbyterian minister, there's a theologian I liked, uh, still like him, uh, named Stanley Hauerwas at Duke University, and he put it like this. It's surprising Christianity has survived Calvinism. Uh, Who's laughing? No, that's fine. You can laugh. Um, 
Now, there's lots of reasons why he would say this. He's kind of an ornery Texan, which I appreciate. But one of the reasons he says this is because of the rigorous and sometimes menacing and cold view of God that has been too often produced, not necessarily, but nonetheless really produced as a result of some Presbyterian and Reformed preaching and counsel on the almightiness of God. So, for example, something really hard, but obviously bad, happens in your life. You, you go through a run of difficult circumstances. Maybe it's just something simple like your washer broke, you're doing your taxes, and you realize you owe more than you thought. You've got to pray, pay for braces all in one week, right? Those little things can kind of add up to feel like a big thing. Or you do have a big thing. There is an illness or an affliction like depression that happens to you or a loved one or cancer, or God forbid, the death of a person close to you happens. That is real tragedy. That is strong stuff. And sometimes well-meaning Christians can reply as to you as you are going through those things, well, God's on the throne. God's in control. Or even quoting Scripture, all things happen for good. Going to that passage in Romans. And let me just reiterate, all of that is true. The Lord never has His hand off the wheel. We are cared for in the midst of suffering, according to Matthew 10. But there is more to it than that. Proverbs 15.23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. In a word in season, mm, how good it is. But isn't the opposite also true? That a true word at the wrong time is inept, is clumsy, can even be hurtful, like cracking an egg with a hammer. It just ruins the whole thing. You see, in hard circumstances, the right truth at an unwise time, especially as it comes to the almightiness of God, can sound like, well, if you don't like what's happening to you, or you don't accept that this somehow is really a good thing, then you are probably outside the will of God. Or you're not an obedient Christian. Or you're not really seeing what's going on. When I was pastoring in Portland a few years ago, um, there was a young couple who came to the church that I was shepherding. And the wife had told me about her father who had passed away suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack just a, a few years prior. And the loss for her, because she was close to her father, he was a good uh, dad, was still difficult for her to bear. And I was just listening to her talk and just, just kind of feeling the weight of the moment. But before I could tell her anything, I saw this. She clenched her jaw and said, but I know God meant it for a reason, that somehow it was good. But I didn't believe a word she said. It was obvious she was repeating what she had been told many times over. And I could also tell that it was not a comfort to her as much as a confession of a hard, cruel, mysterious power who was at work. Affirming God's power had not been balanced with, and hear me on this, God's care, and even mysteriously, God's own ache at her suffering and loss at the loss of her father. Right truth applied in probably the wrong way is what happened with her. 
She knew God was in control, but she wasn't sure if he was good. And we are called as the people of God to together have, find that wisdom, that right, right touch. And the way that we do that and the way that we see that is that we finally, just like in everything that we confess from our theology and from Scripture, how we understand God is by looking to Jesus Christ. And it's the same with His almightiness. It's fully and finally expressed in Jesus Christ. Think about the situation in John chapter 11 and the death and ultimately the healing of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He was the brother of Mary and Martha, and he was sick, and Jesus knew he was sick, and Lazarus eventually died waiting for Jesus to show up. Now, there's a couple of conversations that happened in that story. To the disciples who were with Jesus before they arrive and show up on the scene to Mary and to Martha and to Lazarus' body, they question why Jesus delayed going to see and heal Lazarus. And Jesus said this, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Boy, that's some tough stuff. It is true. It is real. What's he saying? I'm in control, and I'm in control of this. I'm in control of this particular situation. There's even a purpose here. Y'all don't know what it is, but I'm telling you, there is. And this hard suffering happened under my watch. Says that to the disciples. Then they go to see Mary and Martha, the ones who were mourning, who have lost their brother, and what does Jesus say? Does he repeat that Sunday school lesson to him? He still believes it. No, that's not what he says. Jesus speaks of hope in the gospel and hope in the resurrection. And in front of Lazarus' tomb, before he raises him, he weeps. He cries. He's about, he's about to raise him up. He could have just gone and done it, but he stays there to mourn. And it's not a show. Jesus hates death more than us, more than anyone. He experienced the loss of his friend. He, he shared in the suffering that Mary and Martha had. He mourned. But see, he is almighty in his capacity and power to enter humanly into a situation. And by virtue of the fact that we are united to him, we can as well. To recognize the sorrow and the sadness and loss and to share in it. And we are free as Christians, called as Christians to do that for one another as well. In his power, Christ entered into our experience, our struggle, our sadness, and it will be redeemed. But we are right now in between times. It's a time when we mourn, not without hope. It's a time when we grieve and not without purpose. But even this is held together by one who holds it all together as the Almighty One. And it is to that Almighty One we turn in prayer now. Let's pray. Lord, we pray whenever we handle these vital truths that you teach from, not just occasionally, not tucked in some far corner of some exotic book, but front and center in the Gospels, that God is almighty and in control. That sparrows don't fall without the will of the Father in heaven. That you are sovereign 
as we say, that this is something that gives us life, like uh, some, some divine energy source, and yet, like other energy sources, it can be misused. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom to rest and to find comfort in the fact that you are almighty, that it would, that it would facilitate and energize our prayers, that it would turn us in hope and confidence to you, and yet we would not too eagerly speak beyond what we know, but rather because we have confidence in your sovereignty. Maybe just let some mysteries be mysteries. Lord, for those who have gathered here this morning needing a word of comfort because they are anxious, because of circumstances in our life, we thank you that you do know the circumstances of our life down to things like paying rent, eating, putting on clothes that we need. And you're not indifferent. And you've given us each other to help meet those needs. And we know that you are one who exerts care. And by that exertion of care, you make us caring people, even as you did with Abraham. So help us to be the kind of people that you declare us to be in our justification and are making us to be in our sanctification and will be in our glorification. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.